Today on episode number 215 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Brian Dewsbury describes teaching as an act of social justice and equity. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 215. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Brian Dewsbury. He was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago and pursued a bachelor's degree at Morehouse College and a master's and PhD from Florida International University. At that institution, he explored a number of interesting questions in marine ecology and ecological economics, and he developed a number of teaching approaches and programs related to social belonging in higher education. He is personally inspired by the possibilities of education as a force for intellectual liberation and as a means to increase critical consumerism. Brian, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you. We know that we can tell students about our pedagogy, but instead you start your classes by showing your students your pedagogy. Could you share with us the exercise that you do in the beginning of your classes that involves shooting baskets? Well, just so you know, it's not an actual basket. <laughs> I think your audience <laughs> might get a little confused. Um, so I, I don't want to, I'm not going to take credit for this because I actually found it online. There's an individual who does this in a K-12 classroom. I think there's a whole cartoon about it. So I don't remember his name, but if you, if your listeners do Google it, it will, they will find it. And I think it's great. So I teach in a semi-traditional lecture hall, right? So it's sloping, it goes up and uh, you know, the first day of class for an intro bio class, he's talking about 145 freshmen. And what they're coming into class with is a real intention to do well, but they're also coming at a pretty critical transitional period in their lives. And in my short history of, of teaching this class, I've found that the things that trip them up tend to not have anything to do with their ability to actually do the work. It has to do with confidence in themselves. It has to do with trust in the process. It has to do with, you know, a, a specific behaviors on how to study and, and how to manage your time and, and how to kind of engage in an academic behavior that would, that would you know, yield success. And then, of course, it, it depends on me, the instructor, designing an experience to, to make sure that they're able to do those things. So one of the first things we do in class this is the exercise, is I put a trash can in front and I have every student crumple up a piece of paper and I have the first couple of rows try to aim that paper into the, bas- into the trash can and then the second two rows, the last two rows. And as you could imagine, the rows in front have a much easier time of getting the paper in the basket than the last row. And then I ask if you know, people in the first row are they willing to exchange their seats for people in the back row. 
and it's it's amazing how such a silly game they refuse to give it up because <laughs> who knows he might be grading this or whatever anyway and uh, so i use that to make the simple point to them that there's 135 students and they're very diverse in in all ways imaginable and you know statistically not everyone is going to come in with the same level of preparedness and because of that it is my job to figure out with carefully calibrated assessments and with, with attention to detail to know who may need more assistance from myself, from my learning assistants, et cetera, and who might be more prepared and could probably learn other skills like leadership and like teaching others. But it is my job to make sure that in three months, everybody has an equal chance to put that tape in the basket, no matter where they're sitting, no matter what road they're in, what, what end of the road they're in, by the end of the semester, the probability of getting that into the basket should be the same, and that's my job, and that's what equity is. So in the same way I've, I've kind of explained this to you, I explained this to them. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, my teaching style is, is really based on trust, is based on, on a sense of community in the classroom. And I think one of the things with active learning and inclusive teaching in general is, you know, without that relationship, without that trust in the process, um, it just feels like a, a bunch of tricks. So that first day, first couple of days of class is really spent kind of establishing that trust and building that relationship. In order to build that kind of trust, my experience says we have to break some things down. We can't build up the trust before we tear down some walls, some barriers that get in the way. Is that your experience as well? And if so, how? Well, well, when you say barriers, what do you refer to? What barriers did you have to break down? Well, I'm thinking of you. I saw a couple of pictures of you. I've never seen you in real life, but you look like, <laughs> you know, I, and I and I also have spent time in my education being very intimidated by science. So mm-hmm. I imagine uh-huh. if I sat in your class as a freshman, for example, in college, mm-hmm. I would feel intimidated. I would feel he knows so much more than me. I'll never be able to do this, I would feel I would feel a sense of right. fear. And also just the power you're you mentioned teaching 145 students in this big lecture right. hall. You're right. very articulate. You know, I you you would bring a sense of confidence that I imagine could help the learning because it's helpful if we if we trust because this person in front of us is competent. But sometimes if we see them as too competent, we think we'll never be able to get there. Does that, does that make any sense with you? It, no, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so the barrier, I think the conventional barrier that you might be referring to in this case is the, the perception that the instructor, him or herself, may be a barrier or be seen as a gatekeeper yeah, to, um, yeah. to their own success, right? And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I do have the grade book. That, that is, you know, practically true. But I think there's different ways of conveying to the students what that grade book means. If, if the default perception of the student is that grade book is the key to my life in the future and my career and my economic mobility, then they are attaching all of these really high stakes to something. And then once that happens, the class is no longer about learning, right? So... You know, part of the, the, the challenge, I think, in the first two days or the first week is establishing a culture where when you are assessed, you are assessed to ensure that you've developed the skills necessary. And it's not a means to punish you if you didn't. So that means that if you say, for example, didn't do well in some of the early assessments, like the, the surprise quizzes or the first exam, then 
I spent a lot of time looking at my grade book to figure out why you didn't do well, what questions you didn't do well on, and what kind of strategies that myself and my team can enact to ensure that you're better the next time. Mm. So does it mean that we need to have a revision of your study strategies? Does it mean that you're doing really well on recall questions, but not well on synthesis questions? Does it mean that you don't, you haven't been working very well in groups? So all of these things we can sort of isolate in very, very fine detail. And I think that helps reduce the barrier because then it's not, it's no longer me just giving them a bunch of stuff to do or a bunch of information and they're tasked with just kind of putting it all together. It's both of us actually engaging in this process together, right? And the fact that I have more experience in this process means that there's, there are skills I can bring to bear that can help them be more successful. So, yes, I am six feet. I am 200 pounds, so maybe just <laughs> at face value <laughs> on the first five seconds of class, I can, I can maybe give us a particular affect. But I'm also very self-deprecating. I mm. also tell them my own story in science, which wasn't stellar. I mean, I, you know, I'll tell the audience I graduated with a 3.2 GPA. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a rock star. I, I, I went through it. And I, things I did well in, there are things I didn't do well in, and I'm very open and honest with them about that. And part of, part of doing that is to show them that mistakes are normal, stumbling blocks are normal, but how you handle that and how you respond to the challenges is what will make you a better intellectual. I'm hearing two real themes come out. And of course, I've read your articles and, and really enjoyed that as well. I'm hearing a sense of humility that this is not a test. And you mentioned the word trick to mm-hmm. try to get you, but that mm-hmm. actually your results, yes, they'll inform your learning, but that you will be looking back at yourself for how you succeeded or failed as a teacher and, and shaping your own teaching to meet the needs of these learners. And that takes real humility. And I also see that you have a just a hope for these students that they can achieve more than they think is even possible. And I just, I really treasure that about your teaching and and it, it just can help us so much when we're, we're thinking about all the great possibilities of the learners in front of us, instead of all the barriers that they may have brought into the classroom with them. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and I guess you're referencing the article and this sort of speaks to maybe a bit of my own history. You know, you forget what it is to be 18, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I know some of my students are, are non-traditional, but I do teach in a, a pretty traditional university. So most of my students are coming directly from high school. And, and you forget sometimes what it means to be 18. I forget what it meant to be 18. And I, I, I went to college with what I thought was a pretty set idea of what I was going to be. And that did change over time. And I, I do credit a lot of my journey to people who were willing to take the time and listen to me articulate what I think I wanted, challenge me on those ideas and, and, and have me kind of reflect and think about that differently. And, you know, to me, when I think about a four-year degree, five-year degree, six-year, you know, however long it takes, and the length of time a person lives and is expected to vote and have a job and, and, you know, raise a family or whatever they end up doing in a functional democracy. Colleges are actually a pretty short time. So, so the idea that you're going to really spend this time, you know, kind of piling in information 
is a little bit ludicrous because you a there's so much information out there. B that information is changing. At least the form of it is changing. And so what what you to me you really want is give them something that's lasting, so that when the information does in fact change. They are armed with the skills to to learn those uh, that new way of thinking or to to engage in information differently. So the the class is intro bio, <laughs> right? But the 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 things that guide the class, the learning outcomes that guide the class, have less to do with with DNA and, and cell structure and things like that. It it has more to do with. These are some of the fundamental principles that guide how we think about how life works generally. Mm-hmm. And here's a way. Here are the ways in which we engage in understanding those principles. Here's how they were discovered. Here's the social context of those discoveries. Here's what goes into engaging in the discovery process. Here's how you think about biases as you think about research questions and how those biases manifest themselves into actual social outcomes. So that when you go forth and become your own scientist. You take with yourself not just the content, but the way in which that content was acquired. And so that's sort of the, you know, when we talk about the social context of learning, that part's important too. So, you know, I, I you know, we get through a lot of the, 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 the regular topics, but what I think makes each semester unique is, is how we address social context. And, you know, I had a colleague say to me a, a long time ago that, they get tired of teaching the same class every, you know, it's every three or four years they try to switch. And it's a concept I never understood because every semester, every intro bio semester, there's a different 135 students. Mm-hmm. And so the, when, I, when I put the work in to figure out their histories coming in, when I get the spreadsheet of their high school GPA and the classes they took, and when I send them a survey and ask them to articulate to me what they think they want to be when they grow up, when I ask them to write this, I believe, which are, yes, I stole from NPR. Sorry, NPR. <laughs> but when I ask them to write those essays and I read that, all those things are unique to every student and every semester. And so, therefore, it's never the same class, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's, you know, when you're talking about kind of teaching for liberation and teaching for inclusiveness, you are incorporating the voices, the actual voices of the students in how you design the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about growing up and how that informs your teaching today. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because, you know, sometimes when you think about growing up and, and how it impacts your life in general, you know, when I've read maybe other books or seen <laughs> cheesy movies about this kind of <laughs> stuff, sometimes the impression is given that, like, as you're growing up, you, you know, there's this sort of linear trajectory, right? Like, I did this, then I did that, and I did the other thing, and each of these things led you unidirectionally to this thing you are today. And, and what I would argue is that sometimes you don't really understand how things in your life, in your early life, impact you until you, be, you get to a, a cognitive level that you could articulate what actually happened. And, you know, I was, I was having dinner with a friend of mine last night and, and, you know, she's a first generation immigrant and she was being asked by somebody else how that experience impacted her. And, and she was saying to me that she never had to really articulate that. She knew how profound it was like to be poor and, and second language and all that stuff. But but it, it takes some time. It takes some emotional bandwidth and some some energy and some space to really reflect on how things in your early life impact you later on, especially if they are 
you know, profound. And I think in my case, I grew up in Caribbean, in Trinidad and Tobago, Southern Caribbean, closest Caribbean island to Venezuela, for those who are geograph- geographically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the country was most recently an English colony and um, it's very multi-religious. My father was, he's a retired Baptist minister. He also served in Methodist Church as well. And he served most of his ministry in a small town, about 20 minutes from my house. And he had a very particular style <laughs> of preaching. I, I don't practice anymore. Sorry, Dad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think, I, I really firmly believe that my experience growing up in that community, and what our community meant to our family and what our family meant to that community impacts the way in which I approach the community that's my classroom. So just to put it out there, I don't go in class and preach the Bible, but but in terms of the idea that the people that you're called to serve, which in, in my context is, is students, there are there are causes in this world, there are there are there are problems to be solved. There are things out there that they can ascribe to, that they they can be part of the solution. And for them to do that, they have to believe in a greatness that's bigger than themselves right now, right? They have to be willing to take on an identity that they're not just going to come in here and, you know, get an A here, get a B here, get a C there. They're going to be part about thinking about how to make this society better. And to do that, there's a, there's a skill set that, that transcends discipline. And so where the discipline almost becomes the context around which you teach your skills, so that that whole idea that I think my 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 father kind of approaches his religious ministry, I approach the classroom in the same way. It's almost like it's like a, a cloud that guides the thing we aspire to. I, you know, I, I heard it articulated one time. A good friend of mine, maybe six or seven years ago, I was doing an assessment residency at the American Society of Bio- American Society for Microbiology biology scholars program and the leader had said we will be basically doing course design and so the point of that is backward design and you know you write learning outcomes and make sure you can measure it etc cetera, etc cetera. but what she started by saying was write this thing you hope your students will be in like 10 15 years mm-hmm. not that you can measure it now but what what if you had to project these 135 kids you know, the, the kind of society you hope to, to, to live in or you hope they live in, you know, write that and start with that as sort of the lofty goal and then go from that to what are the things you can do today to prepare them for that kind of life. And I thought that was some of the best advice I'd ever gotten on course design. And, and that sort of connects to your question about how my growing up connects to the way I teach now. You have said, and I think this reflects what you just spoke of, that your role Mm -hmm. is to awaken souls. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about how you do that in an introduction to biology class a bit? So I I think that question actually comes back a little bit to one of your early questions about barriers. Mm. And in that, there's a perception. You know, there is is definitely a perception. and, And there are things that feed into the perception of what a college science class should look like, what it should feel like, what they what they expect to happen, what kind of gatekeeping may take place. There's perceptions of, depending on the histories of 
what their own abilities may or may not be in terms of their uh, if they can do well. So these these are real well perceived barriers that that I have to diffuse. So the the process of awakening the soul is really the process of diff, of diffusing those barriers. Is really teaching them and and you know having them believe that regardless of the background they've brought into the classroom there is a potential to do very very well that it is not my job to give them some information it's my job to extract potential they already have and the the degree to which i can uh, get them to engage in that belief that is the awakening of the soul that's that's the student who comes in not being sure if they are a student or a b student and then realizes two, three, four, five, six weeks in, oh, I could really do this. I can explain transcription to anybody and have them ask me questions about it. You do still measure your progress in quantitative ways. So you have this wonderful writing and you're so centered in your sense of purpose in your teaching, yet you still do have quantitative measures that you use. Could you speak a little bit about those measurements and how they have informed your own sense of progress toward more inclusive teaching? So we measure uh, these Fs and withdrawals as, I guess it's called unproductive grades, meaning that those grades will not allow you to move on to the next iteration of the introductory biology course. Now, I just want to make it clear that people withdraw for a number of reasons, so I'm, I'm never really fully comfortable with a W as a sign of failure. But, you know, with the assumption that a student was in the classroom for three months and, and did all the assignments and did everything but wasn't able to get a 70 or above, it's considered an unproductive grade. So that, that per- the percentage of students who earn unproductive grades, you know, historically were in the 20s and 30s percent and some of the worst cases. Over time, at least in, in my particular class, we were able to get that down to 5%, 6% one semester. Uh, unfortunately, some of the, well, most, most of your audience would probably know that in STEM in particular, the failure rates in, in STEM and the, the attrition rates tends to be higher for first-generation students and students of color. And that was similar at my institution, but so we were very happy at least for one semester where that was zero percent for students of color, which tend to be about twenty five percent of my classroom twenty to twenty five percent and so I want to be clear that that as much as I want to to close equity gaps and things like that, my vision of inclusion is everyone's included. You know, white, black, Hispanic identity is it, it, it's not a colorblind ideology, but it certainly is. Everyone stands to benefit from a pedagogy that is inclusive. There are things that you will learn if you didn't weren't exposed to these things before. There are things that you will learn from from engaging with diverse students and and people who didn't have your background and your ideology. And we we model that, we message that, and we encourage it. So. The overall DFW rate has certainly fallen. The DFW rate for historically minoritized students has fallen. And we, you know, we hope to keep it that way. What are some of the practical things that we can do to improve our success in these areas that you've just described? So, uh, you know, I have to confess, Bonnie, I've struggled with that question a Mm -hmm. lot because I do get it a lot because 
I don't know that they are practical strategies. I mean, I, I think they are, but I think that there's work that has to take place before people engage in those strategies. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm saying this. I'm saying this from a place of of experience because, as you may or may not know, I do a lot of faculty development about inclusive teaching around the country, and and I get I get that question a lot. I get people who want me to provide you know, a list of things that they can do tomorrow. That Seven is, things. Um, <laughs> that is Seven things I, I, I could do tomorrow. You know, I, don't, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to knock it. It's, it's, it, there are things that there are in fact very good behaviors that if done in the right context, um, can really, really yield to inclusive classrooms. But I, I prefer, and I really, really try to encourage my audiences to be prepared to do the hard work. There's a long, long, long history of race and education in higher ed. There's a lot of social inequity in broader, wider society that has informed the reasons why this inequity happens in the classroom in the first place. And I really, really would like STEM faculty in particular to put in the work to read about that history. You know, read things like, I know we're not in the recommendation section, but read <laughs> things like Color of Law by Andrew Rothstein that talks about housing segregation. You know, read things like the, the history of higher education that talks about the formation of these universities and, and the history of exclusion of certain groups. You know, read about the Tuskegee study. Read about the sterilization of Latinos in California. Like, read about these things and, you know, don't just assume the science itself to be uh, sin-free, <laughs> and don't don't assume that you can take a, a list of suggestions and just implement them and and assume that inclusion will happen. This is something that really comes from the soul, and one of the reasons why I wrote that piece, the soul of my pedagogy, was I wanted to example what it meant to really look critically back on your own life and see why what motivated me to do what I do and why it's important and why it matters. And uh, I think I may have even said it in there, so to sort of encourage the audience to do that for themselves. And that means that the reasons, the motivation, the, your, your own understanding and your own reckoning with history will be unique to your understanding. And it is from that, it is from that, and it's from that and the way in which you know your students and get to know them every semester, that is what will determine the strategies that you will end up using. So it may be some of the tips, it may be all of the tips, it may be none of it, it may be things, it has to be unique to your circumstance. And that's why I try to get away from practical because sometimes the implication is, you know, well, Dr. Dewsbury said such and such and it didn't work. So therefore, I don't know what, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's like, it's not really quite how it works. You know, I, I'll kind of maybe circle back to this when we get to the recommendation section, but it's a journey. It's very much a journey. It's a journey I'm still on and I'm not perfect. I still make mistakes and I still criticize every class I provide and seek to make it better. But it's, it's, it's a commitment to the journey. I so appreciate you saying that. One of the ways in which I've been truly convicted in recent years is I, I know I subscribe to this myth that if we just gave the students the tools, I, I at least I'm glad I had a service orientation toward it, but you know, oh, you just need this set of tools, you know, that, that I alone can, not I alone, but you know, we alone collectively in higher ed can offer you. And as you have alluded to, they're going to graduate. We can hope and we can do everything we can. And they're going to live in a society of racism and systemic racism that 
all the learning in the world cannot cure. They can, you know, if they had all of the knowledge and skills and everything still wouldn't, wouldn't cure. And I just wrestle with that so much today. It is hard work. It is, it is, but it's, it's rewarding. Yeah. Um, I have to say, you know, it, it really, really is rewarding. This is the point in the show where we will give recommendations. And to this end, I would encourage and recommend that people go read your article, The Soul of My Pedagogy in Scientific American. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, of course. And as you were speaking earlier, I was very motivated and inspired as you talked about teaching as an act of social justice and equity. And one of the books that has stayed with me all this time that I think does that very well is one that was written a a fairly long time ago. Let's see, it was in 2010. So many people will have already heard of this book, but if anyone hasn't read it yet, I would highly encourage it. And that is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lack by Mm -hmm. Rebecca Mm -hmm. Skloot. Yes. yes. And um, very good book. Oh, it sounds like you're familiar with it. Yeah. And it, Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, when we do the cancer unit in class in IntroBio, I introduce the class by referencing that story. Mm. Would you speak a little bit about it then? I'd love to hear you you share it and then um, I'm, but I'm certainly recommending people go read it. Well, you know, as you as you know, the you know, the book talks about the use of, you know, what was eventually called HeLa cells and, you know, Dr. Otto Gay, I believe was his name, who was trying to make a line of human cells replicate and, and how those cells were then used to discover things like uh, the polio vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it, it became famous because of its use and its persistence. The backstory is Henrietta Lacks, the indigo to Johns Hopkins, because that was the only hospital that would accept African-American patients. And, you know, I think one of the things that sort of stuck out to me in that story was the, and it, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I seem to remember the taking of a cells, at least when it happened, it wasn't really even seen as an issue. Correct, <laughs> like, correct. You know, it didn't, it didn't sort of occur to anybody that, that, you know, maybe we should check in to see if that's okay kind of thing. And you know, mm-hmm. there was a, it was a means to an end. Yes. Um, and I use that example when I start talking about cancer to talk about lack of agency mm-hmm. that particular identities had at certain times in society, right? So in the same way, when we talk about the double helix, we talk Rosalind Franklin, and the fact that the use of her data without her permission is another example of the time when science was done with people who didn't have agency to advocate for their involvement in the process. And and so there's a social lesson, in not just not just to tell you you know, this happened and this is cancer and this is a DNA double helix, but, you know, the acquisition of knowledge involves social processes that, you know, bring bring to bear our own biases, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a wonderful book. I do co-recommend that with you. I feel like before anyone ever would, would learn about research practices and, and some of the ethical mm-hmm. things, I mean, what a powerful and compelling story to share and then that much more to want to make sure as researchers we were never a part of anything as as horrific as that the other thing that we haven't shared about is just how wealthy so many physicians have become from the use of these Mm -hmm. cells and the family wasn't even able to get medical care that they desperately needed for themselves so i i believe there has been some monetary <laughs> things, but I mean, no, nothing that would even justify. Yeah, or... it's interesting. I feel like every six months I, I read in the, in the newspaper that there's a new suit. I've kind of lost track of it, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you have to recommend for us today, Brian? 
so I will recommend, uh, you know, I thought about this and man, there's so much good stuff out there and mm-hmm. so much wonderful people doing good work on race and education. But I, I would probably put out one thing that really, really stuck with me recently. And that's actually another podcast. <laughs> Uh, the the uh, the name of the podcast is called Scene on Radio S C E N E, and one particular se- one particular season, he did um I actually forgot his name, but he did the entire season was called Seeing White, and he was basically exploring the concept of whiteness, basically from the founding of 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 the United States, maybe even before that. And in 14 episodes, he just goes through a number of really, really great examples of, 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 of supporting the thesis that racism was really about power and the, the justification of power structures and not, not the other way around. So I, I don't want to kind of kill the punchline, but, you know, he has Abraham Kendi on there. He interviews Lee Michelle Alexander, you know, quite a number of people who've kind of written and, and thought about this for some time. Um, and I think... I think if people want to really understand the idea of 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 generational effects of racism and, and inequity and who want to understand a history of racism like an authentic fact based history of racism that actually doesn't go that far back, it's really, really powerful and well done and you know accessible because sometimes when you read books on these things they're a bit dense and I, I've recommended it to anybody who would listen it's it's Really, really marvelous. And even you know, even if you didn't agree with everything he said, he makes such a compelling argument that you have to at least take it seriously and and think about what he's saying. So, Brian, it looks like a wonderful podcast. Thank you so much for that gift. I'm looking forward to reading. I'll probably load it up on my queue on my way to my next appointment. I hope, I hope, I hope so. <laughs> it's going right to the top. Seriously, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. So, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I forgot to mention earlier that it was Susanna McGowan that recommended you come on. And as soon as I saw your articles, I just I knew it would be an honor to get to talk to you. And I've just so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Thanks once again to Susanna McGowan for recommending that I get in touch with Brian to have today's conversation. I appreciate Brian just awakening our hearts and our minds to the importance of teaching as an act of social justice. Thank you, Brian Dewsbury, for being on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 215. If you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode with the links to many of the resources that Brian and I shared about, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash 215. And if you've been listening for a while and want to have some colleagues to talk to about the show, the biggest thing that usually holds people back is not knowing how easy it is to subscribe to a podcast. So show them how easy it is and look forward to a conversation about a future episode. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.